This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 4th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'm broadcasting this week from Phoenix. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff that went on here as we begin the month of April and head into the home stretch for the regular part, shall we say, of tax season, the pre-extension part of it. This we're going to look at a few things. First, the IRS announced early in the week that they are suspending the mailing of more notices. This time it relates to exempt organizations, qualified plans, and the like. We'll also look at a tax court case where the court affirmed the IRS's denial of interest abatement requested by a taxpayer. We'll take a look at the House passing overwhelmingly the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2022. We'll talk about what that means, the likelihood it may pass. This one looks a lot more likely to pass than any of the Build Back Better proposals ever did. Uh, The vote in the House tells us why it looks so much better. But we'll also discuss how a similar bill got hung up for about six months back in 2019, what's effectively the predecessor to this bill. We'll also talk about above-the-line classroom teachers' deductions. They're going to increase to $300 for 2022. That's actually not news, but the IRS put that out as a special notice this week to remind people of that increased amount. And so we'll discuss that briefly. It is, as Anos points out, the first time the IRS has actually, I should say, the first time that inflation adjustment that Congress put in has actually pushed that number up because it only goes up in $50 increments. And it was, we got the inflation adjustment a couple of years back, but it's taken till now for it to finally clear so that 300 was the next closest multiple of 50. So that's where we're sitting at. So let's talk about the IRS suspension of mailing notices. Now, this was found in the IRS exempt organizations update for March the 25th, obviously released on March the 25th. And what happens here is the IRS is expanding its list of notices that have been suspended. You may remember the IRS is a little behind in processing paperwork. I don't know. You might not have noticed. I suspect you did. And because of that, the IRS in January began announcing what was in a very limited list of things they would stop sending. That list is being expanded, and they're being under pressure, as we've noted from Congress and other sources, to explain why other notices keep going out and what exactly keeps them from stopping them. So I suspect the IRS feels they have to put these batches out every so often uh, to keep Congress happy. In this case, we're going to be looking at 10 notices that relate to various things regarding exempt organizations. So we're going to take a look at that. And if we look at the update, this is the exempt organizations update. And yes, you can subscribe to this. If you work with exempt organizations quite a bit, it's probably not a bad idea to subscribe to this update. That'll get you information as it comes out. And they do archive them here. Now, they do tell us in here, they give us the list of the 10 notices that they are suspending. The first one deals with the 5500 and 5500EZ or SF filing requirement. That reminder notice for filing won't be there. Also won't send out the Form 940 not required notice. As well, first taxpayer delinquency investigation notice. Uh, The first taxpayer 
delinquency investigation notice for various forms there. You can see it's a 990, 990EZ, 990N, then the PF, the T, the Form 5227, the 1120POL, and the delinquency notice for Form 990 and 990EZ. Uh, that's going to be in that background. We're also going to have the IRS will not send out the delinquency notices on the Forms 5500 series. Right. These are all part of what the IRS is doing to try to be able to catch up, let's be honest, on these things. This is what they're looking for because they're a little behind, shall we say. More than a little behind is the way it works. Now, they originally announced their plan to add these back in January. Right. And as noted, it does relate to their backlog of handling paper items. The service is way behind in that area. And so because of that, we now have this announcement. Like with the others, the IRS will begin issuing these notices again at some point in the future when they catch up. If you believe the commissioner, that'll be by the end of the year. If you listen to the National Taxpayer Advocate statement this week, or you read it, you probably noticed that the National Taxpayer Advocate does not believe that's necessarily realistic that we're going to have everything up and running just like normal in December. So we'll see, but my money currently is probably more on the Taxpayer Advocate position. Next up is a tax court case, the case of Porter v. Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-25. The decision came down on March the 28th of 2022. Now, this involves an IRS exam that was opened in October of 2013. Uh, during the exam portion of the case, they did appoint a personal, uh, you know, basically a representative, and the representative did contact the agent. The agent did request additional documents and wanted them by April 16th. Um, you know, and the, the contact was in January, as recall, of 2014. The documents didn't arrive by that time frame. And so the agent just closed out the case, issued, you know, the notice. And eventually we end up with a tax court filing on the issue. And eventually what happens here is they filed in 2014, basically in summer or basically I think it was late 2014. And they finally settled the case on May the 29th of 2019. Now, what the taxpayer wants to have here is some relief from the interest that was charged. That is, you know, the taxpayer's position was that due to unreasonable delays by the IRS that, that were basically the IRS's fault, that they were stuck with this, you know, item that they just, you know, they got stuck with having to pay this interest. So, and if we take a look at the opinion here, what we have in the Porter case You'll see the facts there. They talk about there the exam opening up in November 26 of 2013. They talk about the fact that they designated a representative uh, spoke to her the same day, right, when he received the power of attorney. They opened up the exam, I guess, actually earlier than that. I need to go back to the prior page of the thing. October 28th, so November 26th, they got it, right? They received it there. They spoke with her on the same day, right, scheduling interview for January 9th. On March 5th, they notified the petitioner they needed to provide certain additional records to substantiate items on the return, spoke to the representative on March the 11th, and on April 24th, they closed the case when the uh, representative did not provide those records by the agreed-upon deadline. 
They issue a notice of deficiency for 2011 and 2012 on May 13th of 2014. Now, the taxpayers eventually go to tax court in July, as noted there, and they sent a trial date for April 27th of 2015. And they continued the case on April 1st, and this was on petitioner's motion, which is key here. The taxpayers asked for the continuance and later rescheduled the trial for March 16th, 2016. So we pushed it back, and again, it got rescheduled, so it got pushed back, and it's going to take a while. Again, in March of 2016, the IRS had a motion to extend this case. And in this case, the issue was the taxpayer didn't object to that motion, right, to uh, basically extend processing of the case. They cited their progress toward a stipulation of settlement issues and their pending discovery issues. They filed that stipulation of settled issues later the same month. But now the tax court didn't rule on the motions plus other discovery motions uh, filed after the second continuance until February of 2019. The IRS then assigned the case to an attorney, and she and the parties settled the case in May of 2019. Now, the taxpayers, of course, remember that this thing's been drifting around. It's a 2011 and 2012 return, and we're now sitting in May of 2019. So as you may expect, interest has been running for a while. So the taxpayers paid interest, right, uh, at this point, but then they filed a Form 843 claim for refund request for abatement. They alleged that the case would have been settled on the same terms on the former date, that, that is essentially November 30, 2013, except for IRS error and delay. Now, if you take a look at your schedule there, November 30, 2013 was actually before the taxpayers had appointed, you know, in essence, we get back, let's get our time schedule here. Right. Um, they sent a letter in, apparently at that point, we're going to discover here. And that's going to be the date they're going to say it was unreasonable delay. That was before we had this, you know, the talk with the representative and the representative was talking to the IRS about, you know, the various issues. And finally, we had the request for documents and the documents were not provided. Now, the, the taxpayers claim they, they have the following reasons why they say that really this was not something that was our fault. First thing they said, they received no response to a letter sent to the IRS on November 26, explaining their position. Now, that's an interesting comment because, remember, November 26 is the date of the power of attorney going in, which means the letter went with power of attorney and the uh, IRS agent scheduled a conference to talk with the rep. Now, maybe they didn't directly respond to the letter, but it seems like having the conference with the rep is effectively the response. So that I thought when I read it was kind of a weak position, very weak position at best. Yes, you wrote a letter in November of 2013, you know, but, you know, you, you had a chance to settle everything up. And, you know, you just didn't get it settled at exam, and that didn't get settled because you didn't deliver documents. Now, we go back and forth as to whether that's truly how it worked out, but that's how the court views it. Then the court set a trial date of April 27, 2015, but they had to continue the case because the assigned IRS attorney was able, able to respond to the taxpayers for a variety of reasons. Now, remember, this was the taxpayers' own petition to, you know, please move the date up forward. We need to go over the future. 
Now, they claim now that they had to file that motion because the IRS attorney uh, didn't respond to them or couldn't respond for a variety of reasons. Now, of course, that's kind of generic as to what were those reasons, uh, including they may have you know, come in very late, very close to the trial date. There's a lot of issues there, but in any event, it gets kicked back. Then, as they note, when we are approaching the next trial date in 2016, the IRS requested an extension of time. And in this case, the catch was they didn't actually, you know, object to the IRS asking for the time to be extended one more time. Then they say they received no, resp no request response to a settlement offer that they tendered on November 5th, 2016, and they learned the assigned IRS attorney had been transferred off the case and had not been replaced. Okay, and then finally... Uh, they said that the attorney, you know, basically the taxpayer is alleging here that he and the IRS attorney resolved the case amicably in two phone calls in a four-hour meeting. So we're done. So they're saying effectively that we should not have been charged interest on the amount we finally agreed that we owed after the November date that we first responded to the IRS. So that's what they're asking for. Now, the problem here is that the tax court was not convinced with these facts that what you had, which is, what is, which is what's required. What's required for us in this case is we must have the, a delay that is essentially due to IRS unreasonable delays or being dilatory. And the court did not agree that either of those was what was going on here. So if we go back to the case... What we note is that in the case document itself, right, we had this issue where the court starts explaining. So again, with any case, you always have them explain the facts first. Then they will discuss the law, right? The opinion discusses the law, talking about how the process works, including what you have to show. And generally for this abatement of interest, right, you must show that there was an unreasonable error or delay in payment that was attributable to the IRS officer or employee being erroneous or dilatory in performing a ministerial or managerial act. So that's the allegation. And also, an error or delay is taken into account only if no significant aspect of such error or delay can be attributed to the taxpayer. This, as you might guess, is going to be problem one for them about the November letter. The fact is, the IRS had engaged based on November letter, and the taxpayers dropped the ball of not providing documents back. Now, I'm sure there's a story there. I realized that that was looking at the tax filing deadline. I wouldn't doubt that their representative was involved in tax return preparation. Uh, but for whatever's involved, you know, it's not there. And we all know that the IRS is not going to worry about the tax return filing deadlines for the representative. So, you know, that's just how it works. Whether you like it or not, that's the way that goes. So that's going to probably become a big problem for this, right? Now, they did try to shift the burden of proof. As the court points out, this is not one of those areas where you can shift the burden to the IRS. Uh, it doesn't apply in this case. That's only for the issue uh, related to the taxpayer's liability, not whether or not you owe interest. That's not there. And finally, the court ruled, and again, the test here, did the IRS abuse its discretion 
by denying the petitioner's uh, interest abatement claim. An abuse of, discre of discretion is a fairly high standard, right? It's not just that, well, you know, the, this is not a case where the court goes back and effectively retries the issue and makes its own determination, ignoring the IRS view. In this case, as long as the IRS's, uh, you know, their determination was not an abuse of discretion, it's going to hold. And in this case, they said, look, they said, here's the catch, right? They said, look, the taxpayers themselves delayed the examination, right? Did, by failing to provide the request, did not provide any such records in that November letter. So first thing is, we're definitely going to knock out the November 16th letter. The November 16th letter did not result in everything necessary to close out the case. Arguably, if you are going to be able to make that stick, you essentially had to clearly have provided everything, all information necessary to resolve the matter at that date. And remember, we didn't get this thing resolved by them saying they didn't owe any tax. Uh, we got this resolved by them saying they owed X dollars. And then the question now is the interest. So, yeah, the court pretty quickly said that November 26th date is crazy. It's not going to work. And they said in litigation, it was, again, the taxpayer that requested the first continuance. And they did not object to the second. The catch was, if the taxpayer believed there was unreasonable delay, they really should have spoken up at that time, and they declined to do so. Right? They didn't move forward at that date. Um, you know, the IRS attorney, whatever, the court didn't worry about the IRS attorney not responding to you. Uh, the court only worried about what the taxpayer did. And the taxpayer pushed the case forward twice, right, in that case. And it didn't rule on discovery petitions until November 2019. And as they'll say, the tax court taking a while, and it's, by the way, behind, um, is not really something you can assign to the IRS. So the reality was they said that's not, they're not attributable to an IRS activity, right? Or any cannot, and, or a significant delay can be attributed to the taxpayer. Now, they also complained about the agent's evaluate delay in processing interest abatement claim. Uh, because it's on a basement of interest accrued through June 28, 2019. Any delay after that date, including delay in processing the Form 843, uh, submitted around October 19th of 2019, is not germane to this case. That's not the issue here. That's a separate argument. So bottom line, um, you know, they can't do it. And then the taxpayer tried to say, well, just in the nature of fairness, right, but as the court will say all the time, only in very limited circumstances does the, IR, does the tax court get the right to consider matters of equity. Uh, they're saying this is not a court of equity. This is the wrong court for that. So we cannot dismiss this on equitable grounds. We have to essentially have to look. We have to look directly to the law. We're not a court of equity, so we can't use equitable principles to resolve this. So for that reason, uh, yeah, guys, tough luck. Not not going to work for you. And well, you know, that that's how the cookie crumbles, shall we say. Now, now we have a chance. Hey, I know you're all ready for another tax law, right? Well, we may have one. This week, we had passed by the House the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2022 on the 29th of March. 
It is a follow-up to 2019 SECURE Act. Remember that bill? You know, we passed it right at the end of 2019, and it was going to be the big thing in 2020. And then this pandemic got in the way, right? So we had that. But it's still a pretty big bill. We had a pretty big set of regulations we discussed a couple weeks back, came down on it. Well, this will be now a continuation of this with a number of features in the bill, right? Various items are going to continue uh, issues that were found in the SECURE Act. It passed by a 414 to 5 vote. So there are only five uh, congressmen voting against it. There obviously were a few that weren't there. So that's a pretty overwhelming and obviously bipartisan vote. You know, there, there are more than five members of the minority. So, yeah, it was very bipartisan vote in this case, very similar to the SECURE Act itself. This is a bill that, just like the SECURE Act, has been shepherded by Representatives Neal and Brady, uh, who have been working on these concepts for years. Now, part of the time when Representative Brady was the chair of Ways and Means, part of the time now when Representative Neal is the chair of Ways and Means. And I believe it is a real something that Representative Brady, especially, who is a ranking Republican, uh, wants to see get out of here and done because, as I said, it's been an area of interest of his and he is not running for re-election. So presumably he wants to see this pushed and he has some push behind it. Clearly the House has kicked it out. Now the Senate has a similar bill that it's been working on, right? And it has a lot of similar things. They've been working on a similar bill for three years, uh, you know, basically since 2019 bill. So we'll see if they merge. There's a thought that they may just pick up this bill. They might modify it some. Uh, they could just pass it as is. We'll have to see. Now, the only thing to remember is the last time this happened, uh, nobody really objected to the SECURE Act at the time. However, they objected to other things. And so this got caught up in some Senate maneuvering by, I believe, three different senators who put holds on the bill. And the then Senate Majority Leader, at that point it was Senator McConnell, uh, didn't want to waste the floor time to clear off those things because it would have passed the Senate. He just waited, knowing he had a year-end bill that he could attach it to that was going through on an accelerated basis. And so he just wait and wouldn't deal with their stuff until then when he could jettison it effectively as part of the appropriations package. So we'll see if we have a similar function of the Senate this year. First thing, do they try to bring it up? Uh, and when, how quickly? And then secondly, do we have anybody in the Senate that, you know, do we see, because all kinds of games can be played in the Senate to delay things. So will somebody feel it is worthwhile to delay at this point? Not sure. guess we'll find out once they put it in there. Now, the bill itself, right, we do have a few things. Let's take a look at a few things that are in the bill itself, right? So th this is here, the secure, th this is the House Ways and Means write-up of the bill. Okay, this is their explanations. Now, a few things. The first thing you notice there is this one is going to require you, if you have a plan that employees can contribute to, that you will be mandatory to sign to put them in automatic enrollment. Remember, we allowed automatic enrollment. We then, in the Secure Act, encouraged automatic enrollment much more heavily, and now we're just going to force it. Definitely, this is something that let's say the senators. Or that, uh, you know, we'll say Representative Neal and Representative 
Brady are in favor of, right? So again, it's going to be an automatically enrolled participants will be there. Uh, they're going to make some changes to the tax credits to encourage establishing plans and people contributing to them. Do some changes to 403Bs. Now, probably a big one you're going to see is an increase in, in age for the required distributions. If you remember, under the SECURE Act, we took that up to age 72 from what had been 70 and a half. Well, what's going to happen here is we're going to raise this age to age 73 uh, starting for 2023. That would be the idea. So this year would still be 72. Next year would be 73, which is kind of funny if you think about that because, well, that really means we don't see an effect until, you know, the following year, right? Because that, that'll be the key. So it'll be kind of interesting that we won't really see anything until the 24 tax year because that'll be the first year somebody could wait right they're they're going to be 72 they're going to be 73 next year they're going to be 72 this year which means they're going to pass their rmd this year so my guess is it wouldn't make, make any difference till 24 24 and then it will go increases to age 74 starting on 2030 so now we're going to wait a while and 75 on 2033 so in January 1st, 2033, it will increase to age 75. Under that theory, then, you're looking at people who were born in 1960 and later would be those who'd be looking at age 75 as their starting date. Well, I think, yeah, we'll see. No, I guess actually be 59, right? Because, again, because they, they won't turn 75, 74 until 2033. So, yeah, that, that would be the group that would finally get in. So 1959 and later would be 75 would be their starting age. So that'll give you some idea of there. We'd also index the IRA catch-up limits, right? So we could have that. Also have an additional amount that could go in for catch-ups would go to 10 grand, you know, in this case, and 5 grand for simple plans. Uh, you know, in the, this case where we're going to go from 6,500 to 10 grand and from 3,000 to 5,000. And again, that would be effective in 24 is when we do it, right? We have a few other sections here. Just trying to hit some of the key things we're going to look at here. You could have student loan payments, trees, elected deferrals for matching contributions in your plan. That's going to be an interesting aside, you know, as you could do that. That, that was talked about a lot in the pandemic. You know, could, could, could we basically allow people to defer and use that, you know, as a way to pay off their student loans? And so what we're going to do here is say, well, when the student pays their loan, that's a deferment. We're going to treat that like a deferment, and you could have a match that would go in if you wanted to do that as a way to attract employee. There would also be a special military spouse retirement benefit for small employers. It'd be a tax credit. The catch is it's only a credit. It's supposed to allow military spouses to come into the plan earlier, and you'd be able to get a credit for contributions made on behalf of the spouse. Uh, you know, so you could do that. It would be there. Uh, you know, we'd give we'd allow employers to pay out small bribes. If you contribute to a plan, I love that theory. Small, immediate financial incentives for doing so. Uh, safe harbor for corrective or deferrals. Uh, we'd again expand part-time worker coverage as we did in last time. We had that scanning through here for things that may be there. Um, we're going to skip the insurance stuff here that you may see there in that section. You can read about this stuff. 
Uh, be simpler to recover plan overpayments. Be a little bit easier on the people to do that. Um, we're going to have various other items in here. Uh, we would no longer require you to provide certain information to unenrolled participants who are going to do that. We'd also do a better, I love it, retirement savings lost and found, a searchable database to find retirement accounts that have become orphaned. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, in this case, right, the update limits for mandatory contributions, uh, where we could do that, force them out of the way to seven uh, people that leave to do that. Into an IRA, you could force out if their balance was not above that. Uh, they're going to change the employee plan compliance resolution system to add three different things as ways it could be corrected through e through EPCRS, right? Allow more types of errors internally through self-corrections. Go ahead and apply ECPRS or EPCRS to IRAs. That, that's interesting. IRA errors could be fixed and could fix certain failures to make requirement distributions, otherwise Apple uh, excise tax. That would be there for the plans. Uh, you could, I love this. We, we can apparently have a one-time election to put our money into a split interest entity, right? So a charitable gift annuity, charitable remainder unit trust, charitable remainder unity trust, um, instead of the, you know, in these cases, so it'd be 50 grand you could do. So if I want to set up a CRT, I could have a one-time election to put 50 grand from my IRA into a CRT or a charitable gift annuity. And okay, that's that's interesting. Some changes for firefighters. Again, nothing really big there. We would start putting it though, interesting, section 313 of the bill would give us a statute of limitations that would begin to run on excise taxes and contributions uh, that would be tied to the basically the filing of the tax return for individual tax year of the violation, right? If you were not aware and did not file the return, that would be your defense you could get there, right? We could get there. Um, we're going to talk, oh, we're going to officially limit the repayment of qualified birth or adoption distributions to three years. That was kind of interesting work where it really didn't quite go you you know there would not be a mechanism to recontribute more than three years after remember the qualified birth and adoption expenses and secure you're allowed to take that amount out you can then put that amount uh back in the plan uh, but as a practical matter i know at the time it was passed well if you do that more than three years later because you paid tax when it came out if you wait more than three years to do it we got a problem because at that point in time, having waited three years, uh, you can't file the claim for refund any longer. So, yeah, when they did this in the CARES Act, something very similar uh, for a three-year payback for the CARES distributions, they did limit it to three years. This would put that in there now. Uh, Congress figured out that probably wasn't something uh, they should have paid much attention to. Uh, allow penalty-free withdrawals in the case of domestic abuse. That's kind of an interesting option there, I guess. The theory there, it would allow the abused spouse to access the funds, uh, not pay the penalty, but that would theoretically potentially could allow the abused spouse uh, to leave an abusive situation. So that's the theory, at least for that one. Uh, we'd also reform the Fantry attribution rules, make some changes. Uh, you know, one that fixes community property state issues. And we talk about parents and minor children attributions. Uh, we'll have to get into the details there. We have kids the law passed. This is all a description, and we definitely want to see the actual law when it gets there. 
Uh, we'd have a retroactive first-year elective deferrals for sole proprietors who establish a plan. We would also, Section 332, 322 is really interesting. No longer would a prohibited transaction blow up the entire account in an IRA. That's the big problem right now. You have an IRA that has a lot of things in it, but you engage in a prohibited transaction with some assets that are inside that account. Uh, that blows up the entire account for the you know immediately as of the first of the year. It just everything comes out and it's taxable to you. This would limit the damage to just the basically uh, the affected areas, right? So only the portion used for the transaction is treated as dispersed, and that would be effective for taxable years after implementation, or after, I should say, date of enactment, which in theory would mean it would be effective next year. You'd still blow up the IRA this year. Uh, so we have to try to look at those issues, right? The other weird one is we would now allow plans, pre-tax employee contributions are permitted to accept Roth contributions uh, with one exception, simple IRAs. Uh, you know, those issues, we, we can't do those, so those issues, right? Uh, simple IRAs uh, would accept Roth contributions. And in addition, aside from grandfathered SARSEPs, uh, you know, it can't, we now could have employers could allow employers to offer employees ability to treat employee and employer SEP contributions as Roth in whole or in part. So you'd have the ability to put Roth money or do a Roth simple contribution, you know, IRA contribution, shall we say. And we'd also have the ability to designate part of a SEP contribution uh, to effectively be limited to, you know, a, or I should say would be limit would be in essence would be a Roth contribution, non-taxable whole bit. Obviously it's a revenue provision. Uh that's so they could, you know, it basically they count that money. We can argue that over the long at the complete long term, it's a wash, but remember, they only play 10-year windows. So that's why these Roth changes are always revenue raisers on the theory, right? Because there'd be no deduction. Right. So this is it, right? We're going to go with that. Otherwise, those are the major issues in this bill. We'll see if it passes. Keep your eye on it. Again, it has passed the House. In theory, the Senate could take it up tomorrow and pass it. Well, it takes longer than tomorrow for the Senate to pass anything. But in theory, they, they could pass it within a few days and it could be law, or we could be sitting here at the end of the year. Either one is, unfortunately, uh, probably as likely. So keep your eye. This could move very quickly at any time, or it could just sit there and not do anything. So either is possible. Finally, the IRS gave an announcement that's really not nothing new. But this is IRS news release issued this week, uh, which discussed the maximum educator expense deduction. And what the IRS is discussing here with this deduction is the amount that Teachers are able to, classroom teachers, can't get above-the-line deduction for classroom expenditures they make, right? It will increase to 300 from 250 back in 2022. And the IRS put that on their news release. So when they came up here, they tell us essentially about this and the $300. They remind you of who can qualify. They remind you of the type of things you can do. You still can do COVID items, which is kind of interesting. Uh, we're still at this point able to do that. Uh, however, they do want to remind you that the limit for 2021 is still 250. Yeah, we, we didn't. It's not that you're going to get 300 on the return you're working on right now. 
that 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 one's not not going to work for this purpose. Okay. So that's kind of the issue. Now, like I said, it was interesting that we announced it now. We put out this notice because in reality, it was actually announced the inflation adjustment revenue procedure last year. So we already knew this was coming. This is just kind of this open reminder. Probably helps politically to remind everybody, look at all the wonderful things we're doing for teachers. Uh, you know, th those that sort of political feel-good statement. But it is something that you might have forgotten by now. You may want to remind your clients, if you do have a classroom teacher, that, yeah, they get slightly more this year. Again, not huge. Um, certainly the tax savings for that, well, by a lotte maybe. You know, not, not maybe a couple of lotties, but that's about it. But in any event, it's still there. So be aware of that going on. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 4th, 2022. Uh, again, this is the wonderful beginning of the end of tax of regular tax season. So we have a few more days to go there till the 18th, 14 days, two weeks from this release. And then we're into extension time, right? Extended time. And that's always fun, except for those who do exempt orgs when you're there entering your last month of your regular tax season. So for at least for calendar, you're exempts. So that, that's always a bit more fun. As always, you can email me, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. I also do pay attention to the Connect sites on the New Jersey Society of CPAs, Arizona Society, uh, Illinois Society, uh, Minnesota, and Washington, as well as look at posts on the Idaho's discussion board. So if you're there, you have an issue, you can post there. I'll see if I can be of any help. Um, otherwise, again, it's tax season. It's a mess, which it normally is. And, you know, we're, we're working our way through this and we'll hopefully survive, shall we say, because that's usually the goal at this point is just make it out. So that's what we're doing right now. Have fun. I know the client's going to be calling to say, is my return done yet? Right. Or even better, why do I owe so much? What do you mean extension? And you want me to pay how much? Why? How could I owe that much? And all those neat things you're going to get over the next few days. Have fun with that. And we will hopefully see you back here next week uh, with whatever happens in the coming week, which we hope is not much because, again, end of tax season, not a good time to have major changes come through. So we'll see how that goes on current federal tax developments.